When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reality Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Well, it's Friday, so it must be another Q&A day here on Talking Real Money. I'm Don McDonald. Glad you could uh, join us for another podcast. And we are going to try and get some of your questions answered as we continue to get a lot of them. Called in to 855-935-TALK or sent in at TalkingRealMoney.com, either typed or spoken. And on the Friday edition, we do the spoken versions either through the phone or through the uh, Talking Real Money Speak section. Unless, of course, we run out, which we haven't done. So we've got a bunch of questions for you today. And we hope that uh, if you have a question, you give us a call at 855-935-TALK anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Or again, send them in at TalkingRealMoney.com. And let's get started with our First question. Hey, guys. I'm a new listener in the last six months or so. Uh, This is Otis in Chicago, and I love your non-alarmist, nuts and bolts investment advice uh, and your bad jokes, so thank you for both. I did score a 76 on your risk quiz, and I'm embarrassed to say I have always relied solely on my teacher pension, and I only started saving in my Ross beginning at age 50. I'm now 52. I'm retiring in six years. As an Illinois teacher, I will not qualify for Social Security. Due to extra coaching in clubs, however, over my career, I will end up with a six-figure pension. I still have a $225,000 mortgage, no credit card debt, and two kids in college. The plan right now is to never use my Roth money, but as a beginning investor, I need just a bit more detailed guidance to invest it properly. For instance, when you suggest we had small cap value, this is a super broad term and there are so many options under this umbrella. At this time, I am with Fidelity and I am keeping it simple with Paul Merriman's two funds for life strategy. So when I'm trying to add small cap value fund to my target date fund, FIHFX, do I want small cap value ETFs? or only a small cap value indexed mutual fund. I know you both love Vanguard, but I do need help with Fidelity. Question number one, do I only use ETFs in a taxable account and indexed mutual funds in my Roth? Question number two, when I'm specifically comparing IJS with FISVX, I have no idea what measurement to use to decide between these two funds for my Roth. Tom has often stated that expense ratio is not enough information to make a decision. Where do I go next? Is turnover ratio a significant factor? Efficiency? One-year market return? Question number three, regarding my two-fund Roth, how do I know if I want a target date plus a small cap value? or a total U.S. stock market plus a total international stock market fund. 
I'm overwhelmed, but I don't want you to give me the fish. I want to know how to fish. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of stuff there. All right, I'm going to try to teach you how to fish. But, <laughs> I know, I remember, we have a limited amount of time. Um, we're going we're gonna to start, let's start with question one, which is basically, what do you do with this Roth portfolio? Um, you've got... I, I, I love the idea of just keeping it simple. I just don't think we need to make it too complicated. Have a nice target date fund. Use what Paul suggests in his new book, We're Talking Millions, which is a, a target date fund and a small cap value. And there's a reason. There are not that many small cap values. It's not that broad a category. It really isn't. Um, I mean, Vanguard has a small cap value fund. Fidelity has a small cap value fund, both of which are index funds. And you know about the small cap value. You mentioned it, which is FISVX, the Fidelity Small Cap Value Index. And that takes me back over to, to question two, which is the iShares S&P 600 small cap versus the Fidelity uh, Small Cap Value Index. There's a huge difference between them. There are many huge differences. First one, expense ratio. That's one of the more important things to look at. And the expense ratio on the Fidelity is lower than the expense ratio on the iShares fund um, by about a third. In addition, here's another thing you need to look at. You need to look at diversification. The iShares fund has 600 stocks in it. The Fidelity Fund has, I believe, about 1,500 stocks. So those are two really important factors to consider. That is what would lead me to the Fidelity Small Value Index along with the Target Date Fund. And I think, again, back to simple. Use a Target Date Fund that's aggressive enough for your risk tolerance, which is high. So maybe you go out to 2050 for your uh, target date fund. But, uh, yes, you could go with the Fidelity U.S. total market and the international total market. But now that gives you three funds to manage instead of two. And then at some point you're going to want to add a bond fund in there for stability. So that takes you to four funds instead of two. And I don't know that there's going to be a heck of a big difference between just two funds and eventually those four funds. So keep it simple. And then, see, the key is keep it simple. Live your life. Don't think too much about investing. It shouldn't be that complicated. Thanks so much for the call. We appreciate it. 855-935-TALK is our phone number. 855-935-8255. And let's do this call. Hey, Tom. Hey, Don. Um, my wife and I are invested with a fee-only fiduciary uh, advisor, and we've asked that they take a look at the accounts, our 401k accounts, and advise us on the funds that are available to us, what would be the best options for us and what allocations. And they've said that they can't do that or won't do that. And my question is, is that a typical industry practice or should we be looking for a different advisor? You know, they have done good advisory work for us for the accounts under their management, but they are hesitant and have not been willing to take a look at 
our 401k plans, the options that are available to us, and offer us guidance on what we should be doing within those accounts. And we're paying them 1% a year plus a retainer fee because we don't meet their minimum um, for assets under management. So we're paying them quite a bit, um, basically uh, $85 a month plus 1% of, of assets under management, which is just under 500000 So I feel like we're paying for the advice that they should give it to us, um, but would love a different perspective. Thanks a lot. Oh, come on. Really? They won't advise you on your 401k? That's a cop-out in my opinion. I can't think of a single legal reason why they can't do that. No, there is none. They just don't want to do it because they're not getting paid for it. And and this picky any sort of thing that they're doing, you got a half a million bucks and they're charging you 1% plus $85 every month? Uh, this is an advisor I'd probably fire. I'd start hunting for a new one. Um any advisor worth his or her salt is going to want to advise you on your 401k, even though they don't get paid for it. There's a good reason for that. I, I think it, 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 it's, it's a version of malpractice to not figure the 401k into a portfolio plan because there may be asset classes that you can't get in your 401k and uh, better investments you can use there that are lower priced than some of the others so that you can build the portfolio properly. You should. It's a, it should be a holistic approach to your portfolio. For example, you may not have small cap value, emerging markets, a lot of the more esoteric segments of the market available in a 401k. That's pretty normal. So what you could do is you could get your large cap growth, maybe some large cap value, or maybe it's just large cap growth and international that you get in your 401k, or maybe they have great bonds and you use the 401k for that. And then you build outside of the 401k, those asset classes into the total portfolio. I just think that's irresponsible. I really do. I, I, I would ask them what their reasoning is. Nah, I wouldn't. We know what their ultimate reasoning is. They're not getting paid for it. It's not that hard of additional work. It's not like they're placing trades, but it should be part of the whole process. I, I disagree, and I think it's irresponsible. Thanks so much for, for your call. And uh, the number is 855-935-TALK, or you can send questions in at TalkingRealMoney.com. Up next, this call. Hi, I grew up and bought many homes in California and uh, most recently, the last 30 years, owned a house in a beautiful town called Half Moon Bay. And over the 30 years, my house barely appreciated to the cost of living index. So uh, I did, uh, I, in fact, I did not keep up with uh, inflation. I was a little below it. So when people look at their investment for a house, California really accelerated but it did not grow as much in most all areas as as uh, much growth as uh, cost of living, uh, inflation and all. So I thought your uh, listeners would um, appreciate that. I uh, would love to hear if there's a different perspective on that. I talked to many economists and 
no one can give me a good reason on why I have to pay capital gains on something when my money stayed relatively flat over 30 years. Thank you. Thank you for making a point that needs to be made. We, we hear so much about housing appreciation in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, in Los Angeles, in Seattle, in Phoenix, in Miami, in New York. We hear a lot about those markets when they're hot, and they've been hot lately. Uh, but we don't hear about the markets that have languished throughout the last couple of decades, maybe longer. As you say, like way northern California, or uh, there are there are a lot of the, the the eastern part of California, some of the valley areas, uh, the Midwest, the plains. You haven't seen infl- uh, housing prices rise in those areas the way you have in other markets, which means that that big increase we've seen in real estate, that twenty some odd percent increase we've seen this year. Most of that is due to 30 and 40 and 50% increases in other parts of the market. So a lot of the country isn't seeing this. You know, I bought a house in a small town that has hardly seen real estate inflation. Uh, homes, the same beautiful home in, in my the town I'm moving to in Virginia, I hope, is half the price per square foot of similar houses in Florida probably a third the price per square foot of a similar house in the Seattle area, probably a quarter of the price per square foot as a similar house in the San Francisco Bay area. So yeah, most of the country hasn't made a lot of money off of real estate. And you're right, you are paying the government if you sell your house capital gains based on in large part, on inflation. But the good news is, if the house is a primary residence, you every two years you get up to a half a million dollars per couple in a capital gains tax exclusion. Life's not fair. It's not always fair. But you do make a valuable point that real estate is not the moneymaker that so many of these late-night infomercials and self-serving podcasts and people like Robert Kiyosaki would lead you to believe. Real estate is not a moneymaker everywhere in the country. As a matter of fact, it's not a nonstop moneymaker anywhere. And it makes sense that it shouldn't make much money over inflation because it is an investment. It's a commodity. It's a thing that doesn't become more valuable in and of itself, unless you fix a piece of property up, unless you add to its value. It's not like a company that can become more valuable through doing a better job and selling more product. It's not like a bond that makes money because it's paying interest. Because they're borrowing money from you and there's risk. Real estate is a place to live, a place to work, a place to buy things but shouldn't always be an appreciation vehicle, over, much over and above inflation. Thanks so much for your call. We appreciate it. And uh, let's go here now. 855-935-TALK is our phone number. Okay, quick question on 401k plan limits. Uh, 
It says max salary deferral for workers is 19.5. Catch-up contributions for 50 and older are 6,500. But then it says total contribution limit is 58,000 plus an additional 1,000. I don't understand how you get to that. Um, how can you have a max of 19.5? And a catch up of 6,500 and get to 58,000. I don't understand. Please explain. Thank you. <laughs> I could see why you're confused. It is a bit confusing. Let me explain it. All right. 19.5, that's the 401k contribution limit for everybody up to 50. Over 50, you can add 6,500 to that, making it 26,000. That money can go into either a tax deductible, a tax deductible, let me say that again, tax deductible 401k or a Roth 401k. So you get a tax advantage uh, at the beginning or at the end with one of those. The additional $32,000 that you can add up to the limit of a 401k. And by the way, that includes your employer contribution. That money can only go into a non-tax advantaged account. You don't get a deduction for that extra 32,000. You don't you can't put it into a Roth 401k. All it's going to do is grow tax deferred, which is probably not that big a benefit. Tax deferral, when we're talking about paying income tax at the end, tax deferral is not a big deal. Tax deferral is a very small deal because for most people, a large percentage, if not most of their assets in a retirement plan are going to be in appreciating assets like stocks. Well, the good news about owning an index fund or individual stocks, well, we don't like you owning individual stocks, but the nice thing about owning stocks is that except for the dividends on which you pay income tax, you don't pay taxes on gains that are not yet realized. So if you have a mutual fund that doesn't realize a lot of capital gains, a tax-managed fund or an index fund, and you hold that for 20 years, well, you're going to get a lot of tax deferral. And at the end of that 20 years, when you pay taxes on it, you'll pay taxes at the current capital gains tax rate, which currently is dramatically lower than the income tax rate. So there's not a there's not a lot of advantage to, to going to that 58000 in the 401k plan because you don't get any big tax break out of it. Thanks again for calling. Actually, you went in through Talking Real Money and, and recorded it using the microphone button, which you can do. Just go to TalkingRealMoney.com and leave your question. You can type it there, too, or you can call it in 24 hours a day, seven days a week to 855-935-TALK. And if you got one of these things that just doesn't, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't have enough time to ask my question. Well, that may be because it's really complicated. And if it's super complicated, you have a lot of assets that you want someone to look over, or you're trying to determine how to best create a plan for the future, we have, and hopefully always will, at least as long as Tom and I are around, offer anyone 
a free meeting with one of our fiduciary advisors, no cost, no obligation, and it's not a sales pitch. It's not a high-pressure sales pitch. It's a real meeting where you're going to get some real meat out of it. A meeting with meat. What a concept. To set one of those up, just go to vestory.com, V-E-S-T-O-R-Y.com, and uh, set up an appointment right there on the front page, and somebody will get in touch with you, and we'll set up a meeting, and you'll get your questions answered. And if you want to become a client, we would love to have you, but we're not going to bug you to do it. Okay? Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Please tell your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, acquaintances, people you bump into on the street. Ask them to listen to Talking Real Money. And if you really like what you hear, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. By the way, you want to listen to Saturday's show because we got a review. We got a review that we're going to, um, well, we're going to address. It was not a good review. So we're going to talk about it, and uh, we hope you will chime in. Because remember, on Saturdays, you can call us live between 3 and 5 Eastern or noon to 2 Pacific time at that same number, 855-935-TALK. Take good care. We'll talk at you soon. I'm Don McDonald, hanging out, talking real money. Talking real money. That the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future. So, past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now?